0: To finish writing a novel is in itself a big achievement, even if, like Charlotte Wood, you've already written six and received plenty of critical acclaim, sales and awards like the Stella Prize and the Prime Minister's Literary Award for them. But getting that novel out into the world is an even bigger thing when you've had to interrupt the process because you were diagnosed with cancer. And in Charlotte's case, her two sisters were also diagnosed with breast cancer in the space of six weeks. and. Cancer killed both her parents before she was 30. Somehow, Charlotte got through all that and finished the new novel Stoneyard Devotional, and I'm very pleased to say that Charlotte Wood joins us now on RN. Welcome and congratulations, Charlotte.
1: Hi Julian, thank you very much.
0: Could you give us a quick introduction to the main character in Stoneyard Devotional and a sense of what happens to her?
1: Sure. So the narrator is unnamed in the novel and she The book opens when she sort of stumbles into a closed or cloistered order of nuns in a little monastery set on the Monero Plains in the south of New South Wales. She's gone there just to sort of get some refuge. Lots of these places offer kind of guest house refuge for people in need. And she really just goes there because she just wants to lie down and be left alone, really. She checks out what the nuns are doing in their, you know, Church seven times a day. She thinks it's all very strange and kind of faintly ridiculous, but she's grateful to these people for, you know, giving her this space. And then turn the page, and some time has passed, and it turns out she's now living in this place and she has um, left her marriage and her work and her home in the city. She doesn't believe in God, she doesn't understand what prayer is, and yet she's found a kind of uneasy sort of peace in this place. Not long after she gets there, there's a lot of uh, interruptions to this very ritualised, peaceful, orderly sort of life. One in the form of a mouse plague that (laughs) arrives, which upends everything. And the other is the return of some skeletal remains of a nun who used to live there but had disappeared overseas and had been presumed murdered and her bones had just been found. And they are being brought back to the monastery by another nun. Uh, called helen Parry, who's a one of the sisters there calls her that celebrity nun and does not really <laughs> approve of her because she's she's a kind of wildly uh, radical activist in the world sort of fighting for justice all around the world. and so there are these kind of cultural clashes of the life of contemplation versus the life of action, and that's the tension that my narrator is also trying to work out what is the best way of living.
0: Mm. Now, Charlotte, you've mentioned quite a number of nuns in that first (laughs) answer, and I've read that you're fascinated by nuns. What is it about nuns, Charlotte?
1: (laughs) Well, I guess as a feminist atheist who grew up as a Catholic, who Mm -hmm. grew up in the Catholic Church, I mean, I've often thought that, you know, you could leave Catholicism, but it doesn't really leave you in some ways. I wanted to think in the beginning when I was starting to write this book about why on earth a contemporary woman. Would choose to become a nun, and I didn't really get it at all until I thought about those women who kind of remove themselves from contemporary society to live in a contemplative mm. um, retreat. And I actually do get that. I understand the appeal of just withdrawing. You know, in the last month, the onslaught of the sadness and badness of the world is something that I think a lot of people want to escape, and that sort of what my narrator has done. Although she never becomes a nun herself, she lives in this place with these women and she actually comes to really respect them and the way they live.
0: From the geographical location of the novel to things like dealing with the death of one's mother, uh, there are plenty of parallels between the story of Stoneyard Devotional and your own life story, Charlotte. And of course, all that happened before your personal cancer diagnosis and what Mm. was obviously a huge family shock. Mm. I wonder if you could give us some reflections on those parallels between your narrator's life and and your life and deciding to write about them in the novel.
1: Yes, it is my most personal novel, definitely. So it's my seventh novel and my 10th book. And I feel that it took me 10 books to learn how to write this book, if mm. that makes any sense. Mm. I, I did grow up on the Monero, not on a farm, not you of know, a, a grazing family, but in town. But the landscape of that area is, if anyone listening knows it, it's so, um, it's so elemental. It's bare and stark and very, very beautiful. But it sort of has a very stripped back appearance and feeling. And... I, you know, I was already writing this book as, as you said, about a narrator who she's drawn there by some sort of animal instinct, really. But it comes clear that one of the reasons she's there is because of her parents are buried near there. Mm. Um, my parents are buried near there, and I guess I just wanted to explore that feeling of grief um, that doesn't go away even after a very long time. I mean, it certainly subsides and changes texture and becomes less terribly painful, but I'm sort of interested in the way it doesn't go away. And there's a certain level of shame, I think, that's attached to that for some of us, about, you know, feeling that we should be over it by now, you know. So the landscape kind of echoed the state of mind of my narrator. And I wanted to write a book that was very spare and very spacious and that left a lot of space for the reader. And so I was doing that already and then as you've said there's great shock befell my family which was that three of us out of five um were diagnosed with cancer within six weeks of each other so we all went through treatment at the same time and you know cancer is a very very common experience many of your listeners will either be going through treatment right now or have had that experience and i guess the relevance of that to the book is that When that year came to an end, it was kind of a year of just shock, really. And we're all fine now. We're all out of treatment. But you are changed by that experience. I certainly was. And I went back into the book with, I guess, even more of a commitment to this stripped back elemental bedrock kind of feeling because that experience seemed to have stripped away any... Any desire for sort of triviality or entertainment or sort of, I don't know, reassurance, it felt like I, I don't know what I've become. You know, <laughs> I, I will, I will, it would take me a long time to figure that out, but it certainly, it was almost like my life caught up with what the book was trying to do anyway and gave me a, a big, uh, a, a friend who emailed me recently said, it's a cold tap on the shoulder um, when you have a cancer diagnosis, mm, mm. even after you are, recovered and i i took that knowledge i suppose or that understanding that we are mortal really took it back into the book
0: on sunday extra we're speaking with charlotte wood about her new novel Stoneyard devotional charlotte uh, there's a beautiful phrase in the novel where you where the narrator not you but <laughs> someone who maybe could be you speaks about dealing with an emergency and having a sense of Absolute calm for a while, but then afterwards, the primitive body knows fear and responds, the narrator says. I wondered if that's something you'd experienced or whether that reflects your worldview about how we deal with crises like the ones you've described already.
1: Look, I think I've grown more and more open to the idea that the body has a lot greater knowledge of what we're experiencing than our minds do at the time, sometimes. Mm. Someone asked me the other day, do you write with the body? And it was such an interesting question. Hmm. And I think I have come to know that I do, in that I write in a very instinctive way, a very, I hope, more and more intuitive way, just trusting my instinct. But the way that I recognize whether that instinct is correct is with the body. It's like, you know, your heart will beat faster or you sort of almost feel yourself physically lifting Towards an idea, as opposed to when it's not working, it's just a kind of slumped feeling, you know, and a kind of deadness on the page leads to a a lack of energy in the body. So, you know, I've never been a woo-woo sort of person. I've never been, you know, into alternative therapies or whatever. But I, having experienced a kind of big crisis of the body, it's a crisis of the whole being. You know, I can't separate my intellect from my body anymore and I'm kind of glad of that because I think it's a much more integrated way of living.
0: You've said in other interviews about the book that you now place a great importance on uh, your work being self-respecting. Could you tell Mm -hmm. us about where you got that phrase and what it means to you?
1: Yes, I got that phrase from a wonderful, wonderful documentary about the artist, Rosalie Gascoigne who many of your listeners will know for her amazing sort of found object sculptures and installations. And she talked about putting a show together, you know, assessing her own work and knowing that it was ready when the show or the work was self-respecting. And I loved that because it was not about the artist being self-respecting, but the work Mm. respecting itself. And there's, you know, I'm not even quite sure exactly what that means, but it seems an important difference. That the work is a whole thing that is untrammeled by outside anxieties or expectations, or you know, thinking, Oh, will this upset somebody, or will reviewers like it? Or, you know, I wanted to take on that perspective that she has that if the work is self respecting, and she made clear that she had very high standards for what that self respect looked like in her work. Then it didn't matter when anybody else thought it didn't matter whether anyone else liked it and i think that's a really powerful thing for all artists to learn and i feel that i'm just starting really to internalize that another thing she said was something about the absolute jurisdiction of the artist over their own work and i loved that as well because we're so culturally trained now almost to see everything in terms of of customer service you know (laughs) like if someone buys my book it has to please them whereas if you're an artist it should not enter the relationship you know it's like when I read a book that I don't love that's my problem you know it's not the writer's (laughs) problem so I just found her kind of steel as an artist very very appealing
0: you said earlier that you feel like now after seven novels and three works of nonfiction that you've finally learnt how to write a book. Is that what you're referring to, that sense of self-respecting, or is that something slightly different?
1: Uh, it's partly that. It's also a lot about trusting this instinct that I talked about, trusting that my I suppose trusting that the reader will come with me rather than thinking I've constantly got to be anxious about whether the reader will understand what I mean exactly. And also giving the reader more power in the the reading experience in that not over-describing things or over-explaining things. There was another quote that I sort of really held in my mind as I wrote from W.B. Yeats. And he said somewhere that only that which does not teach which does not cry out, which does not condescend, and which does not explain is irresistible. Mm. And I found that very exciting. And it was sort of a development for me, I think, from my previous work, in that I had felt in myself a kind of egoistic drive to explain or teach or kind of admonish or, you know, comment on society. And I was sort of just sick of that especially after COVID, after the pandemic, I felt like we don't know anything. You know, we humans walk around thinking we know everything about this world and we can control everything. The pandemic blew that out of the water. And then my own experience of illness blew it out of the water again. One of the epigraphs I've chosen for the book is Nick Cave from his book, Faith, Hope and Carnage, written with um, Sean O'Hagan. And he said, I felt chastened by the world. Mm. And he was talking about the aftermath of his son's death, but also the aftermath of the pandemic. So that just hit me like a bolt. That's what I felt chastened. And I suppose I took that tone into the book as well.
0: Charlotte Wood's new novel is called Stoneyard Devotional. And even though, as an artist, you clearly don't worry too much about the customer satisfaction <laughs> sentiment of it, I can assure anyone who's thinking of reading it that uh, customers will be very much satisfied by the <laughs> new novel. It's a great read. Thank you so much for joining us on RN, Charlotte.
1: Thanks, Julian. Thank you very, very much. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.